Hello everyone, it's May 21st, 2019. This week, SpaceX has been building another Starship at an undisclosed secret lair. It's really just an industrial park in Central Florida, but we're going to discuss this and the remote chance of a Starship single stage to orbit. And liftoff! And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 211 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So I was able to make it this week because there was talk that I might not be on the show, but I just couldn't help but show up uh, <laughs> because I'm on vacation. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, just a small trip to visit my mom and my friend uh, in Atlanta. And we went to a little concert, a little venue for a band called Super Organism, which I don't know if you've ever seen them. Has uh, Have either of you seen them? No. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're a very visual-based type thing. They did like a tiny desk concert for NPR because everyone does that oh, these cool. days. Yeah, That's and cool. uh, then you'll get an idea of what they are. They're, it's it's a band that was formed by way of the internet and then they eventually got together and started touring. It's kind of an incredible story because how do you make music in that way? Like you really have to be good at sending files back and forth over yeah, no, right? I don't know how long. Isn't that uh, the Postal Service, right? Why they got their name? Kind of, yeah. That's what I've heard, yeah. I don't know if it was... I mean, it seems like... The easiest thing would be by sending emails or something, but I don't know if that was really around then because I don't know. I think the postal service got started in like the early two thousands, right? I mean, there was email, but yeah, it wasn't very I don't know effective. If you could send large files. Yeah, I yeah. don't know if you could send large files. From what I remember hearing in an interview, it was it was tapes that they sent back and forth. But I also kind of feel like you know they would have done that even in the modern day because <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of the postal services vibe yeah you mean like hipster like old school yeah. <laughs> pretty much <laughs> like, yeah. like you gotta send an analog tape so yeah that's what i'm up to so i'm here and ben you're here with an answer to this week in space flight history i take it because mm-hmm. the clue last week i don't remember what it was but it was very very easy sounding so apparently we have just two winners so apparently that clue was harder than we had given it credit for yeah i mean it, it was less difficult and more just uh vague enough that you had to get lucky to to guess the right thing so so the clue was wet soil is confirmed on mars um maybe i should have said you know absolutely soaking wet soil <laughs> um but our full credit winners are anderson denova and valentin frank uh and then we have some partial credit winners uh rockets and music fell night Coaster Gallery, and Ben Hallert, um, who all guessed correctly, but uh, for the wrong reasons. So this week in spaceflight history is May 25th, 2008. It was Phoenix Lander landing on Mars. It's easier to say like Phoenix Rover lands on Mars, but you know, it's not a Rover. And so, so Phoenix was the first successful Mars uh, lander that landed in the polar region or, or, you know, one of the polar regions, the Mars polar lander <laughs> you know intended to hit the poles but um it hit them actually yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. it made it to mars but it crashed on the way down and i don't think we still know for certain what went wrong which is kind of interesting so uh phoenix lander the proposal was being written around the time that mars odyssey saw likely water ice on the surface of mars actually what mars odyssey saw was hydrogen and so you know the the most likely source of that signature was water ice and so you know they're already writing this proposal for this lander and it just it's it's perfect timing to write uh, a proposal for a lander that's gonna go look for water ice so to that end it had a bunch of experiments it had a uh, robotic arm a stereo imager 
uh, gas and soil analyzers. And um, I'll include a, um, a photo in the show notes. It's just really gorgeous. It's a, a scoop taken out of the regolith um, by the robotic arm. And you can see water ice uh, on the surface. And in this case, it's uh, two photos four days apart, and you can actually see ice sublimating away, which is really cool. Uh, it, it, it makes me happy. Uh, I like mm. that you can see so clearly that there's ice. And then I think my favorite thing on board, uh, Phoenix Lander, no, maybe not my favorite, but one of my favorite things was the Mars Descent Imager, uh, also known as Marty. And Marty was this uh, really cool camera. Uh, it actually had a mic on board. And, you know, we have this big thing about how we've never sent a microphone to another uh, to another planetary body. And, you know, a, a lot of people get upset about that. But on the other hand, it's like, well, the data that would be sent back is not going to be, you know, meaningful. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have to process it for it to actually uh, to really mean anything in terms of what a human would hear. So, so of course, Insight, you know, has been able to collect, you know, quote unquote, audio data of, of wind. But, but Marty had a true blue onboard microphone and it would do this really cool thing where it takes photos during the last three minutes of descent which i love watching landing video like you know there have been a number of missions in the last couple of years that have done this and it just it gives you such a great sense of scale and excitement and mm -hmm. you know kind of a glimpse at what humans one day will see but <laughs> at the last minute they realized there was a bug in the hardware so the way that marty works is it actually it doesn't send data directly to the computer it actually has its data packaged up with other instruments and it all goes through like a bus like a, a single card that reads in this data and there, there's a, a tiny little issue where if marty is sending data into the main computer uh it it can, you know, overwrite data from other instruments, which, you know, include some things as unimportant as the inertial measurement unit. But, you know, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I, You know, I guess some people really value IMU readings. But yeah, so sarcasm aside, you really don't want Marty running uh, with this bug in place. They found it too late to fix it. And so Marty was just disabled. Uh, it flew to Mars. The hardware is sitting there on the Martian surface and we never got to use it, which sucks, but it's, it's a good story anyway. Uh, but yeah, could you imagine, uh, accidentally having your IMU data get dumped <laughs> overboard because Marty was sending in a photo? <laughs> yeah, that should be, well, I don't know, like, uh, right protected, right? Prioritized higher. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So the clue for this week has to do with the wet chemistry lab. And I think this is so cool. So basically, Phoenix had, I think it's five wet chemistry labs. And they're basically little blenders. And so, so there's a titanium water tank. Uh, that holds 25 mils of water. Um, there is a mixing tank, and then there's uh, an agitator inside the mixing tank, and then there is uh, a door that leads to the outside, basically. And so what they did was they scooped up soil, regolith, they scooped up some dirt, um, they put it into a sifter, and, you know, they uh, sift out the big chunks, and they take just a little bit of it, one cubic centimeter, so the volumetric equivalent of one milliliter of water and they dump it into this tank with some water and they blend it up and they can do chemistry on it 
And there are a number of reasons why this is important, but they're able to to see the way that soil reacts with water, um, which, you know, analytically gives you a lot of good data, but also like gives you data that's geared towards potentially putting plants in the soil, which is pretty neat. As far as I understand, uh, the wet chemistry lab did not look uh, for life because we've done that in the past, right, where you dump some soil onto a, a growth medium and just see if it's going to. Uh, grow bacteria, which is really unfortunately a bad way to do the experiment because <laughs> it's tough to tell if you've got Mars bacteria or Earth bacteria. But anyway, so the, the clue for this week was right wet soil. This is the wettest dirt gets, right? Is dumping one volumetric milliliter of soil into 25 milliliters of water. <laughs> you should have said something like a dirty cup of water discovered yeah. on Mars. Or <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Which is exactly, yeah, it's more dirty water than it is wet soil. Hmm. Um, and, and so uh, a couple of the guesses had to do, well, all the guesses had to do with uh, with water ice. But I want to point out that liquid water cannot currently exist on Mars except for one or two places where, you know, at, at the lowest altitude uh, near the equator where you just barely get enough air pressure uh, for liquid water to form. Mm-hmm. Um, huh. I didn't so, know that there was any pressure yeah. high enough to allow for that. Hellas Basin. Yeah. Whenever you see that giant, okay. giant crater on Mars, that's the one. Um, and I mean, we we see evidence of past water, but not uh not current water. And and what's interesting is that um one of the guests is actually um mentioned something that really cool that happened on Phoenix, is that it wound up getting ice on its legs. Like I think it was uh, CO two ice actually formed on the landing legs and kind of moved around as, you know, as the environment changed, which, which is cool. It's a good guess, but, uh, not liquid water and the, the water ice in those photos, by the way, it didn't melt. It sublimated, right? It just Mm -hmm. goes from solid to gas. So what else was on board? Uh, there was a, uh, LIDAR set. And one of the really cool things is this LIDAR experiment, saw snow falling from clouds <laughs> like let me just let that sink in snow on mars exists and this is the first time that we ever we we'd ever seen that happen before um they also use the lidar to look at like cirrus clouds like really high altitude clouds which is so cool because we don't you know we only occasionally uh, see clouds on mars that are big enough to actually see from orbit but you know if you bring very expensive equipment to Mars, you can actually uh, observe the clouds. So Phoenix was planned to last for 90 days. And this is one of those uh, missions where they are not expecting it to have, you know, multiple years past its primary mission. And that's because of its latitude. It was just in such a tough environment during the the Martian winter. It, it had a 90-day primary mission. It actually lasted an additional two months on top of those 90 days, which is fantastic. They really were hoping that, you know, somehow, some way, they were actually going to survive long enough into the winter um, to begin to see the ice cap build up. Because this is so cool. At mm-hmm. the latitude that phoenix is at it ended up getting covered in co2 ice 19 centimeters thick worth of co2 ice and that's so much ice so so it eventually died because of a um of a dust storm 
But if it had survived the dust storm, the CO2 ice would have been so thick that it would have snapped off uh, the solar panels and, and killed the rover that way uh, or killed the lander that way. So I can't wait until one day we can go and see it in person in the winter and see just this dejected old piece of hardware just you know, embedded in CO2 ice. I think that'd be really, really, really cool. That is wild. Yeah. So um, unlike uh, the Spirit Rover uh, or uh, Opportunity, when we talked to Carrie Bean, we talked about, you know, Opportunity's last uh, transmission and and what that actually sounded like. Unlike that, they actually knew that Phoenix was going to die and they had a planned final message because they knew they weren't going to recover it after winter and this dust storm just was the death knell. And so they got to choose what their final message was. And it was the word triumph uh, transmitted in binary, which is pretty cool. <laughs> you know, so if, if you see somebody asking about last, you know, Rover last words, let them know that, yeah, we, we've done this intentionally and it's pretty cool. I feel like that should have been your clue, triumph in 2008. You know right, what I mean? You want to write the next clue, David? You want, you want <laughs> well, to do my maybe. job? <laughs> you already have the next one. So... You can keep it. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you for being gracious. Uh, so speaking of which, the clue for next week uh, is next week in 1951 to overcome a challenge only to get involved in another. And that's in 1951. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the very, very early days of space exploration or ramping up to it. I don't know. I have no idea. Do you have any idea? Uh, this is a this is I'm, a good one. I, I'm happy to say ahead of time, this is going to be a good one. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm just switching back to regular Dennis mode. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, so Dennis, you you guessed uh, Phoenix, but you didn't you didn't guess the exact reason. Yeah, I thought it was the scoop. I mean, I I figured it wasn't. It didn't really. There was nothing wet about it, and so that's why I kind of was like, ah, darn it. <laughs> you, you know the the Wikipedia page for Phoenix says that it's named after the mythical bird. Which, no, I don't think it is. I think it's named after Phoenix the City, and they just won't admit it. <laughs> yeah. Although it was headquartered in Tucson, and we uh, tend to not like Phoenix. So oh, maybe. okay. Well, then why would you pick the name Phoenix? I have no idea. I mean, it's it's the... It be the Tucson lander. Exactly. If it's not going to so, live that long, it's going to polar regions. Why would you pick a hot thing that comes yeah. back from the grid? So, somebody in Tucson lost a bet. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Sam. He says, wasn't it meant to be Phoenix because it was revived from a half-built canceled mission? I there we go. That. If that's the case, that would be very appropriate. Mm-hmm. Mars Surveyor 2001 Lander. Interesting. Thank you, Sam. Yeah. I, really, I really appreciate that. Okay. Yeah, so that clue was next week in 1951 to overcome a challenge only to get involved in another. So if you think you know what that's in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Yeah, good luck, everybody. SpaceX engages in some internal competition, which I think is a cool idea. Mm -hmm. So this came to light from somebody spotting uh, somewhere on the Cape or near Cape Canaveral in some industrial park, a starship being built or what looked like a starship Mm -hmm. prototype being built. And that has since been confirmed. And there were some tweets from Elon Musk uh, stating that this is all part of some sort of masterful scheme to get uh, two two factions of SpaceX employees uh, healthily competing against one another. At least that's how I would put it. Yeah, you're developing something in parallel so you have twice as many opportunities to catch mistakes. 
way I, I see it, yeah. Which I think is a good idea. I've thought about like how often do companies do things like that. Mm -hmm. I just feel like nothing, I mean, we're not, I, won't, I shouldn't say nothing works better, but you know, there's almost nothing better than a little bit of competition because mm -hmm. it really just makes you go that extra mile. Well, he, he describes it as A-B testing, uh, Elon does, which is interesting. Yeah. Like A-B testing is supposed to be like um, randomized, like where you have two versions of you know, like a newsletter and you're not sure which one's going to work better. So you AB test 10% of your audience where you send some of them version A and some of them version B. And then whichever one gets more clicks is the one that automatically gets sent out to everybody else. So this isn't actual AB testing, but the analogy seems really great because uh, yeah, it's, it's not like actual competition. It's doing different things and having two different sets of brains working on the same problem. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Elon specifically said, you know, if somebody comes up with a good idea, they, they're going to share it back and forth, but they don't necessarily have to to go with it, which is, uh, right. which is pretty cool. One thing that's interesting, he also tweeted that both sites will make many starships. And this is a competition to see which location is most effective. I'm not sure. Now, does he mean most effective in making these starships or most effective in coming up with the best starship and then from that point both sites will obviously you know like be manufacturing the same but i'm just a little fuzzy on exactly what he meant by that because it would make sense to make them all at the cape i would think and then to manufacture well no because they're right. going to be launching from yeah right. okay so yeah both sites actually do need to be making them because you don't want to be putting this thing on the road because right. that's difficult to do so yeah maybe maybe one day they can they can have a really optimized factory somewhere and they'll just fly the rockets out of there but that that would be like... that's how you get planes from you know like the boeing manufacturing facility right which is in which is in washington state right so you just fly them off of because they must have like a large landing strip there or something yeah. Um, but yeah, to, to your question, like, obviously I don't, I don't know this, but my guess is that whatever works best is going to work best because, you know, mm -hmm. Elon said this is a competition, but you know, maybe it's going to be best to, maybe they'll both be, you know, effective, which I think means, you know, maybe mm -hmm. they'll both come up with things that work at their particular location that would be less effective somewhere else, but for them, it really works. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's my guess. Um, and you know, it'd be really tough to convince me that SpaceX was going to do something just because it happened to work somewhere. You know, it mm -hmm. seems like they're going to take the time to get this right. Cause it, you know, in the end it comes down to money. My, my take on that was that the construction and building this thing, there might be some parts of that process that Boca Chica uh, found was more effective to do it, you know, in this order before, you know, do X before you integrate Y, for example, right? And then they can go and tell Florida that that's a more efficient way of doing this. But mm -hmm. otherwise, they're working yeah. on the same blueprints and everything. Not like, yeah. oh, we're going to do one with an extra mm -hmm. fin, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ours has an espresso machine. <laughs> that is important. There is one cool difference that we can already see before. And Sam uh, had just highlighted that the uh, the one at the Cape looks more professional. And, you know, it has a windscreen that's just, you know, an actual built windscreen around it, while yeah. evidently the Boca Chica, right? They just got a <laughs> stack of shipping containers yeah. to act as their windscreen. So maybe they find Yeah, that, that, that windscreen uh, apparently wasn't built specifically for this. It looks like it was already there in satellite photos. So uh, I don't know. It's, it's kind of tough to tell exactly what's what and, you know, what was purpose built and what 
what just happened to be there, but mm-hmm. time will tell. And then the other thing, they might also be doing launches from Pad 39A for test launches, which is really neat. And these would be single stage to orbit. Now, I guess I've kind of forgotten because I keep on forgetting that you can launch just the Starship. I mean, you can't get much into low Earth orbit with just the upper stage or just the Starship, I should say, but it can be done. And hmm. I think that's really cool because yeah. this is already single stage to orbit being done and people say it can't be done or it's not practical which i guess well, we have to wait and see if it's actually practical but you know. yeah well so so recovering an ssto was a is a much bigger deal but the mm-hmm. falcon 9 first stage could make it to orbit and even carry a little bit of cargo not much uh, but it, it could have a tiny payload on top of it. So oh. this isn't the first okay, time that SpaceX that. has built. Yeah, yeah I didn't know yeah. either. Wow. But I mean, they've never put a first stage into orbit. No. <laughs> Why would you? <laughs> yeah. Why would you? It's a bad idea. Uh, SSTOs just don't don't really make sense. Like our gravity is just a little too high that it's you know not not that big of a deal. I would still argue that it does make sense economically. That's the key thing. Or like logistically because yeah, it costs more in propellant, but then if not, you're going to have to stack two stages on top of each other. And that might not seem like a big deal, but if launching a, a rocket into space becomes much more trivial, just consider how much more trivial it would be if you didn't have to stack stages, you know? Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you have this economic incentive to just go ahead and pay for the extra fuel. Yeah, but I mean, it's diminishing returns at a point. You know, if you actually want heavy payloads in space, SSTO just... Well, if you want heavy payloads, yeah. But like if you could launch just Starship to get a certain payload into low Earth orbit, wouldn't you do that as opposed to using the booster? No, because you would never be able to recover Starship. For Starship, to get it SSTO, you have to take off the heat shield, you have to take off the landing legs, and Mm -hmm. you have to use all the fuel so you don't have enough fuel to land. If you're talking about a theoretical SSTO, like a vertical takeoff SSTO Uh that could take payload, yeah, but it's it's definitely going to be more expensive than just a small sat launcher that's two stages. To get Starship to orbit, you actually have to do all that stuff. You have to take off the legs and all that, and it cannot yes. come back? Because mm-hmm. yeah. I thought that it could. I thought no. that's kind of surprising that they would want to launch this thing and not bring it back they or don't. not attempt a, a landing. Don't. Apparently, the word is that they might try to do a single stage to orbit. Have we seen them say that, that they are planning on doing SSTO with Starship or just suborbital hops because that i that would be news to me if that's the case yeah i'm reading that it's more like elon perhaps is trying to just talk about how awesome the capabilities of starship is it's it's not even that some somebody else said hey elon said that starship can't can do ssto right and elon goes well technically mm-hmm. it could but oh yeah yeah it wouldn't be able yeah, to right. do all this so, well, that's so that doesn't... you should have read that <laughs> yeah that's that's what i mean like that you know it technically it's that powerful yeah. enough that it could do yeah. that but I'm, there's okay. not really a reason to yeah unless you again wanted to just throw the whole thing away afterwards yeah may- maybe if you needed something really shiny in orbit ASAP, uh, you could do that. But otherwise, it just, you know, mm-hmm. like you actually want usable payload on orbit. So, yeah. So on Earth, this does not work. But I still maintain then <laughs> you just have to make a slightly bigger starship that can do it. And then it still makes economic sense or at least like better sense than stacking it on top of a second stage. I do kind of agree with you when, you, when you're saying how if we got to the point where you use the word, if it became trivial, mm-hmm. just as the technology improves, I could imagine where there are situations where it's economically reasonable for single stage to orbit 
And so we could just, you know, there might be times when you'd want to do that, but that's not here now. It is more feasible economically to drop the landing gear when a plane takes off because that will save you fuel. But I mean, you don't actually do that. You could shed parts of the plane off as you don't need them as you fly, but that's mm -hmm. just not something you do. You keep the whole thing in one piece, you land it, refuel, and you take back off again. I do understand well, the fuel makes up a much well, larger mass fraction of the vehicle. Th this but. is more akin to uh, midair refueling. Right, where you have two different stages. You have a, a tanker that can't go those long distances, but can refuel the, you know, highly specialized fighters or whatever. And so you have them meet up and refuel. Um, that's that's much more analogous to a two-stage fully recoverable system. But that's because it's necessary. I'm saying if it's not necessary, right? Because obviously we have airliners that don't do in air refueling. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Because of the rocket equation, it'll always make sense to stage your vehicle, but you don't necessarily have to do that because you might have enough fuel and thrust to get you to orbit, in which case maybe just keep it all in one piece and don't stage because you don't have to bother restacking and integrating these various things. Yeah, maybe some customers sometime will want their thing up there in single stage orbit because of the particulars of what they want up there. I don't know what that is, but I'm just saying hypothetically. <laughs> Extra short, short and sweet, just two of them. What's the first one, Dennis? Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter identifies Bereshit Lander's crash site. The LRO was able to identify the site where Space Isle's Bereshit spacecraft hard landed on the moon last month, making them the first private company and Israel the sixth country to reach the lunar surface. While a crater hasn't been detected, the point of impact is marked by a smudge about 10 meters in size with dark and light patches up to 100 meters away related to lander debris and ejecta, respectively. Space Isle's founder, Mars Khan, plans to try to soft land again with Bereshit 2. Next up, Land Space assembles a Methalox engine. Uh, the Chinese private launch firm has finished assembly of the TQ-12, its liquid methane-fueled engine that will power its Zhu Chui 2 launch vehicle. The TQ-12 engine is modular in design, reducing the number of parts needed for assembly. The engine has a thrust of 80 tons and will enable the Ju Chui 2 rocket to deliver 4,000 kilograms to Leo. A hot fire test of the engine was successfully performed on the 17th. So this is the one of the few Methalox engines and it's being built by this Chinese company Landspace, which we talked about mm. a while ago. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of like, this is actually kind of like a big deal and maybe we should talk about it further, uh, maybe down the line because uh, this is like an impressive leap in technology for China. Yeah, I can dig it. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. So we had a, a listener by the name of Artur who had a really cool email. So he, he wrote in and said, hey, um, my dad actually died in the the VLS explosion. So he wrote in and he had, you know, nice things to say about uh, about our coverage of it. But he's like, you know, it's, it's good to hear this being covered because like it's a major part of my life. And I was like, that's amazing. You know, I'm I'm so sorry to hear about your father. But this is important, and would you mind if we uh, read your story on the podcast? And he said uh, that he'd be fine with that. So he he wrote us a, a pretty good email talking about you know his recollections, and then I turned around and asked uh, Anderson Denova if he would read it for us, and he agreed to. So I can go ahead and uh, give this a play. Hello, guys. Great to be back. Well, uh, so we got this email from one of the listeners. Uh, regarding the episode 209, where I speak about the Brazilian space program. More specifically, uh, he was talking about the the big 
accident that happened in the Alcantara launch base, uh, the the VLS explosion. And uh, well, apparently uh, this listener, his father was one of the what I call in the show notes the heroes of the Brazilian space program, because he was one of the people who gave their lives for uh the program and he he did die on the on the 22nd of august of 2003 so i'll just read verbatim the the message he sent to us well actually two emails so the 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 first one and then the the follow-up so the first one says uh, my father has been a part of the uh program from day one of the sonda projects in natal the fatal up to the vls3 so this has been a part of my life if my dad had not gone to Natal on the Barreira do Inferno in the 1980s for the Sonda project, he would not have met my mother and I would not be here. He has been a leader at EIA from CTA since 1978. Uh, my father was Cesar Augusto Costa Longo Varejão. We miss him a lot. Happy to hear people still care about their legacy and they were real heroes. Thanks. So that was the first message, and I'm reading it the second time, and I got goosebumps again, just because it's I, I felt like it's, it's a strong message. And the second one says, so I was 18 years old when it happened. This is a part of my history, too. I have been raised listening to stories about space. In my house, everything had to do with space and aircrafts. You may imagine who had the best water rockets in school competitions in my city. My father was also an amateur aircraft builder, flight instructor on Trike, which is a small airplane. He was preparing to retire in the next years and live on flight instruction and plane building. We are from Taubaté, 30 kilometers from São José dos Campos, where CTA, ITA, INPE are located. My father, as I said, was deeply involved in the aerospace program since the 1978. That team was like a family for him and for me. When I was 17 in 2002, trying to give a direction to the third child myself, he found a job position for me in the CTA computer lab. Actually, I was mostly carrying server blocks, no breaks, and then doing actual science. But that motivated me to follow my current career as a computer engineer. At that time, there were 11 people working on the lab, including my dad. They were part of my daily life, and six of them died in the accident. You may imagine the pain of losing my idols at the time. In 94, after the Soviet Union broke up, Russia was selling cheap technology and military goods for countries that were developing their own technology. Brazil had an arrangement with the U.S. that military tech should not be purchased from the U.S. or agreed with them that the technology would not be used for building war weapons. As you may know, the rocket launching technology is very close to large distance missiles. So, referring here to ICBMs. Uh, Brazil was trying to create its own tech. US, the US was not sharing the tech updates and secrets, while Russia was an open book. My father was sent to Russia in December 94 and returned one month later, scared as hell to be treated like a spy and was held in a hotel for days. So Russia was in war days and the Brazilian visit for purchasing counterfeit material could not be official. But he completed his mission to bring the igniters for the VLS in a Fabi airplane. So just to, uh, that's Anderson saying. So Fabi is the Brazilian Air Force. Uh, my father has several chances to leave the project and set out to go work on Embraer. 
where my two older siblings work currently, or TECSIS, a wind power builder company. But he had like a personal goal building these rockets. He cannot hear people criticizing his job like saying, with these Brazilian shame rockets, we could have built a thousand houses. On the, or the two previous trials, the engineers were heavily criticized by the people and the media. People usually did not value his work. Like he used to say, in the US, NASA people were heroes. Here, they had been ashamed. He always said this science would change this country like it did to Russia and the US. My uncle participated on the accident investigation, but after the boom of interest, neither the people nor the government were interested in knowing truly what happened. And after Marcus Pontes went to space, we no longer heard about that. As if we had accomplished everything just by simply paying someone to go to space rather than developing our own technology. Myself and my family had to leave it behind in order to move with our lives. Now, the only disappointment that I have is that the VLS program was left. Like all of the work and the people was just in vain. Brazil was so close to reaching another level on air and space technology. And now we have to start from scratch. Sorry for the long email. There's been such a long time since I heard people even asking or caring about it that it made me remind me of these stories. So, uh, yeah, very powerful. I don't think I, I need to comment anything further. So... Thanks for having me and thanks for the message and thanks for listening. Well, there you have wow. it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Anderson and Arthur. Yeah. Thanks to Anderson for reading all of that. That was awesome. Mm. Let's move on then to upcoming spaceflight events. We just got three launches. Well, two launches, one of them, we'll <laughs> see. Uh, so what's the first one? So on May 21st, we've got the PSLV CA uh, core alone will be taking the RISAT 2B satellite to orbit. So this is a uh, ISRO imaging satellite, and again, the launch date is May 21st at 2357 UTC, with a launch window from 2330 to 2359. Then after that, we're going to see a Long March 4C fly with Yao Gan 33, which is a recon satellite. So that's scheduled to fly on May 22nd at 2245 UTC, and then there's a window that's open until 2311 UTC, same night. Finally, but this is unconfirmed, uh, there is the Falcon 9 Block 5 with Starlink. So that was uh, that was scrubbed uh, two times now, and it looks like now it might be launching on Thursday. And what was the time? 0230 Mountain Standard Time, 530 Eastern. But yeah, we're not sure because that's not confirmed. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. Last we heard, SpaceX had to do a software update of the Starlink satellites, which is weird to be doing that when it was supposed to have already been put in space. So what are they doing now that they obviously should have taken care of before the launch? Yeah, this hap this Maybe happens. Maybe it's something that's time sensitive. I think it's just that if you let software engineers go, they will continue to write updates in perpetuity. And so they're like, hey, let's let's just run this update now when we don't have to worry about paying for time on on the ground networks. So mm -hmm. maybe. Yeah. Uh, alrighty. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And with that, time to deorbit the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out and thank you to TC Green for reviewing us. Uh, on iTunes, was it? Yeah, on iTunes. On iTunes. So thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the 
quantummechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you. Thank you.